Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650s, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Chapter 3 of King Richard I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Richard I by Jacob Abbott Chapter 3 Fair Rosamond During his lifetime, King Henry did everything in his power, of course, to keep the circumstances of his connection with Rosamond a profound secret, and to mislead people as much as possible in regard to her. After his death, too, it was for the interest of his family that as little as possible should be known respecting her. Thus it happened that, in the absence of all authentic information, a great many strange rumours and legends were put in circulation, and at length, when the history of those times came to be written, it was impossible to separate the false from the true. The truth, however, so far as it can now be ascertained, seems to be something like this. Rosamond was the daughter of an English nobleman named Clifford. Lord Clifford lived in a fine old castle situated in the valley of the Wye, in a most romantic and beautiful situation. The River Wye is in the western part of England. It flows out from among the mountains of Wales through a wild and romantic gorge, which, after passing the English frontier, expands into a broad and fertile and most beautiful valley. The castle of Lord Clifford was built at the opening of the gorge, and it commanded an enchanting view of the valley below. It was here that Rosamond spent her childhood, and here probably that Henry first met her while he was yet a young man. She was extremely beautiful, and Henry fell very deeply in love with her. This was while they were both very young, and some time before Henry thought of Eleonora for his wife. There is some reason to believe that Henry was really married to Rosamond, though if so, the marriage was a private one, and the existence of it was kept a profound secret from all the world. The real and public marriages of kings and princes are almost always determined by reasons of state, and when Henry at last went to Paris and saw Eleonora there, and found moreover that she was willing to marry him, and to bring him as her dowry all her possessions in France, which would so greatly extend his dominions, he determined to accede to her desires, and to keep his connection with Rosamond, whatever the nature of it might have been, a profound secret forever. So he married Eleonora, and brought her to England, and lived with her as has already been described in the various palaces which belonged to him, sometimes in one and sometimes in another. Among these palaces one of the most beautiful was that of Woodstock. The engravings on the opposite page represents the buildings of the palace as they appeared some hundreds of years later than the time when Rosamond lived. In the days of Henry and Rosamond, the palace of Woodstock was surrounded with very extensive and beautiful gardens and grounds. 
Somewhere upon these grounds, the story was that Henry kept Rosamond in a concealed cottage. The entrance to the cottage was hidden in the depths of an almost impenetrable thicket, and could only be approached through a tortuous and intricate path which led this way and that by an infinite number of turns, forming a sort of maze made purposely to bewilder those attempting to pass in and out. Such a place was often made in those days, in palace grounds, as a sort of ornament, or rather as an amusing contrivance, to interest the guests coming to visit the proprietor. It was called a labyrinth. A great many plans of labyrinths have been found delineated in ancient books. The paths were not only so arranged as to twist and turn in every imaginable direction, but at every turn there were several branches made so precisely alike that there was nothing to distinguish one from the other. Of course, one of these roads was the right one and led to the centre of the labyrinth, where there was a house or a pretty seat with a view or a garden or a shady bower or some other object of attraction to reward those who should succeed in getting in. The other paths led nowhere, or rather, they led on through various devious windings, in all respects similar to those of the true path, until at length they came to a sudden stop, and the explorer was obliged to return. The paths were separated from each other by dense hedges of thorn, or by high walls, so that it was impossible to pass from one to another except by walking regularly along. It was in a house entered through such a labyrinth as this that Rosamond is said to have lived, on the grounds of the palace of Woodstock, while Eleonora, as the avowed wife and queen of King Henry, occupied the palace itself. Of course, the fact that such a lady was hidden on the grounds was kept a profound secret from the queen. If this story is true, there were probably other labyrinths on the grounds, and this one was so surrounded with trees and hedges which connected it by insensible gradations with the groves and the thickets of the park that there was nothing to attract attention to it particularly, and thus a lady might have remained concealed in it for some time without awakening suspicion. At any rate, Rosamond did remain, it is supposed for a year or two, concealed thus, until at length the Queen discovered the secret. The story is that the King found his way in and out of the labyrinth by means of a clue of floss silk, and that the Queen one day, when riding with the King in the park, observed this clue, a part of which had in some way or other become attached to his spur. She said nothing, but, watching a private opportunity, she followed the clue. It led by a very intricate path into the heart of the labyrinth, there the Queen found a curiously contrived door. The door was almost wholly concealed from view, but the Queen discovered it and opened it. She found that it led into a subterranean passage. The interest and curiosity of the Queen were now excited more than ever, and she determined that the mystery should be solved. So she followed the passage, and was finally led by it to a place beyond the wall of the grounds, where there was a house in a very secluded spot surrounded by thickets. Here the Queen found Rosamond sitting in a bower and engaged in embroidering. She was now in a great rage both against Rosamond and against her husband. It was generally said that she poisoned Rosamond. The story was that she took a cup of poison with her and a dagger and, presenting them both to Rosamond, compelled her to choose between them and that Rosamond chose the poison, and, drinking it, died. This story, however, was not true, for it is now known that Rosamond lived many years after this time, though she was separated from the king. It is thought that her connection with the king continued for about two years after his marriage with Eleonora. She then left him. It may be that she did not know before that time that the king was married, she may have supposed that she was herself his lawful wife, as indeed it's possible that she may have actually been so. At any rate, soon after she and Eleonora became acquainted with each other's existence, Rosamond retired to a convent and lived there in complete seclusion 
all the rest of her days. The name of this convent was Godstow. It was situated near Oxford. Rosamond became a great favourite with the nuns while she remained at the convent, which was nearly 20 years. During this time the king made many donations to the convent for Rosamond's sake, and the jealousy of the queen against her beautiful rival, of course, continued unabated. It was indeed this difficulty in respect to Rosamond that was one of the chief causes of the domestic trouble which always existed between Henry and the Queen. The world at large have always been most disposed to sympathise with Rosamond in this quarrel. She was nearly of the King's own age, and his attachment to her arose, doubtless, from sincere affection, whereas the Queen was greatly his senior, and had inveigled him into a marriage with her through motives of the most calculating and mercenary character. Then, moreover, Rosamond either was, or was supposed to be, a lady of great gentleness and loveliness of spirit. She was very kind to the poor, and while in the convent, she was very assiduously devoted to her religious duties. Eleonora, on the other hand, was a very unprincipled and heartless woman, and she had been so loose and free in her own manner of living too, as everybody said and believed, that it was with a very ill grace that she could find any fault with her husband. Thus, under the circumstances of the case, the world has always been most inclined to sympathise with Rosamond rather than with the Queen. The question which we ought to sympathise with depends upon which was really the wife of Henry. He may have been truly married to Rosamond, or at least some ceremony may have been performed which she honestly considered as marriage. If so, she was innocent, and Henry was guilty of having virtually repudiated this marriage in order to connect himself with Eleonora for the sake of her kingdom. On the other hand, if she were not married to Henry, but used her arts to entice him away from his true wife, then she was deeply in fault. It's very difficult now to ascertain which of these suppositions is the correct one. In either case, Henry himself was guilty, toward the one or the other, of treacherously violating his marriage vows, the most solemn vows, in some respects, that a man can ever assume. Rosamond had two children, named William and Geoffrey, and at one time in the course of his life, Henry seemed to acknowledge that they were his only two children, thus admitting the validity of his marriage with Rosamond. This admission was contained in an expression which he used in addressing William on a field of battle when he came toward him at the head of his troop. William, he said, you are my true and legitimate son. The rest are nobodies. He may, it is true, have only intended to speak figuratively in saying this, meaning that William was the only one worthy to be considered as his son, or it may be that it was an inadvertent and hasty acknowledgement that Rosamond, and not Eleanor, was his true wife. As time rolled on, however, and the political arrangements arising out of the marriage with Eleonora, and the appointment of her sons to higher positions in the state became more and more extended, the difficulties which the invalidation of the marriage with Eleonora would produce became very great and immense interests were involved in sustaining it. Rosamond's rights, therefore, if she had any, were wholly overborne, and she was allowed to linger and die in her nunnery as a private person. When at length she died, the nuns who had become greatly attached to her caused her to be interred in an honourable manner in the chapel, but afterwards the bishop of the diocese ordered the remains to be removed. He considered Rosamond as having never been married to the king, and he said that she was not a proper person to be the subject of monumental honours in the chapel of a society of nuns. So he sent the remains away and ordered them to be interred in the common burying ground. If Rosamond was what he supposed her to be, and if he removed the remains in a proper and respectful manner, he was right in doing what he did. His motive may have been, however, merely a desire to please the authorities of his time, 
who represented, of course, the heirs of Eleonora, by sealing the stamp of condemnation on the character and position of her rival. But though the authorities may have been pleased with the bishop's procedure, the nuns were not at all satisfied. They not only felt a strong personal affection for Rosamond, but as a sisterhood, they felt grateful to her memory on account of the many benefactions which the convent had received from Henry on account of her residence there. So they seized the first opportunity to take up the remains again, which consisted now of dry bones alone, and, after perfuming them and enclosing them again in a new coffin, they deposited them once more under the pavement of the chapel and laid a slab with a suitable inscription over the spot to mark the place of the grave. The house where Rosamond was concealed at Woodstock was regarded afterwards with great interest, and there was a chamber in it that was for a long time known as Rosamond's chamber. There remains a letter of one of the kings of England, written about a hundred years after this time, in which the king gives directions to have this house repaired, and particularly to have the chamber restored to a perfect condition. His orders are that the house beyond the gate in the new wall be built again, and that the same chamber, called Rosamond's chamber, be restored as before, and crystal plates, that is glass for the windows, and marble and lead be provided for it. From that day to this, the story of Rosamond has been regarded as one of the most interesting incidents of English history. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of King Richard I This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Richard I by Jacob Abbott Chapter 4 The Accession of Richard to the Throne Richard was called to the throne when he was about 32 years of age by the sudden and unexpected death of his father. The death of his father took place under the most mournful circumstances imaginable. In the war which Richard and Philip, King of France, had waged against him, he had been unsuccessful. He had been defeated in the battles and outgeneraled in the manoeuvres, and his barons, one after another, had abandoned him and taken part with the rebels. King Henry was an extremely passionate man, and the success of his enemies against him filled him with rage. This rage was rendered all the more violent by the thought that it was through the unnatural ingratitude of his own son, Richard, that all these calamities came upon him. In the anguish of his despair, he cursed the day of his birth and uttered dreadful maledictions against his children. At length he was reduced to such an extremity that he was obliged to submit to negotiations for peace on just such terms as his enemies thought fit to impose. They made very hard conditions. The first attempt at negotiating the peace was made in an open field where Philip and Henry met for the purpose on horseback attended by their retainers. Richard had the grace to keep away from this meeting, so as not to be an actual witness of the humiliation of his father, and so Philip and Henry were to conduct the conference by themselves. The meeting was interrupted by a thunderstorm. At first the kings did not intend to pay any heed to the storm, but to go on with the discussions without regarding it. Henry was a very great horseman, and spent almost his whole life in riding. One of his historians says that he never sat down except upon a saddle, unless it was when he was taking his meals. At any rate, he was almost always on horseback. He hunted on horseback, he fought on horseback, and he travelled on horseback, and now he was holding a conference with his enemies on horseback, in the midst of a storm of lightning and rain. But his health had now become impaired, and his nerves, though they had always seemed to be of iron, were beginning to give way under the dreadful shocks to which they had been exposed, so that he was now far less able to endure such exposures than he had been. At length a clap of thunder 
broke rattling immediately over his head, and the bolts seemed to descend directly between him and Philip as they sat upon their horses in the field. Henry reeled in the saddle, and would have fallen if his attendants had not seized and held him. They found that he was too weak and ill to remain any longer on the spot, and so they bore him away to his quarters, and then Philip and Richard sent him in writing the conditions which they were going to exact from him. The conditions were very humiliating indeed. They stripped him of a great portion of his possessions, and required him to hold others in subordination to Philip and to Richard. Finally, the last of the conditions was that he was to give Richard the kiss of peace, and to banish from his heart all sentiments of animosity and anger against him. Among other articles of the treaty was one binding him to pardon all the barons and other chief men who had gone over to Richard's side in the rebellion. As they read the articles over to the king while he was lying upon his sickbed, he asked, when they came to this one, to see the list of names, that he might know who they were that had thus forsaken him. The name at the head of the list was that of his son John, his darling son John, to defend whose rights against the aggressions of Richard had been one of his chief motives in carrying on the war. The wretched father, on seeing this name, started up from his bed and gazed wildly around. Is it possible, he cried out, that John, the child of my heart, he whom I have cherished more than all the rest, and for the love of whom I have drawn down on my own head all these troubles, has verily betrayed me? They told him that it was even so. Then, he said, falling back helplessly on his bed, then let everything go as it will. I care no longer for myself or for anything else in this world. All this took place in Normandy, for it was in Normandy that had been the chief scene of the war between the king and his son. At some little distance from the place where the king was now lying sick, there was a beautiful rural palace at a place called Chinon, which was situated very pleasantly on the banks of a small branch of the Loire. This palace was one of the principal summer resorts of the Dukes of Normandy, and the king caused him now to be carried there in order to seek repose. But instead of being cheered by the beautiful scenes that were around him at Chinon, or reinvigorated by the comforts and the attentions which he could there enjoy, he gradually sank into hopeless melancholy, and in a few days he began to feel that he was about to die. As he grew worse, his mind became more and more excited and his attendants from time to time heard him moaning in his anguish. Oh, shame, shame, I am a conquered king, a conquered king. Cursed be the day on which I was born, and cursed be the children that I leave behind me. The priests at his bedside endeavoured to remonstrate with him against these imprecations. They told him that it was a dreadful thing for a father to curse his own children and they urged him to retract what he had said. But he declared that he would not. He persisted in cursing all his children except Godfrey Clifford, the son of Rosamond, whom was then at his bedside and who had never forsaken him. The king grew continually more and more excited and disordered in mind until at length he sank into a raving delirium, and in that state he died. A dead king is a very helpless and insignificant object, whatever may have been the terror which he inspired while he was alive. As long as Henry continued to breathe, the attendants around him paid him great deference and observed every possible form of obsequious respect, for they did not know but that he might recover to live and reign and lord it over them and their fortunes for fifteen or twenty years to come. But as soon as the breath was out of his body, all was over. Richard his son was now king, and from Henry nothing whatever was any longer to be hoped or feared. So the mercenary and the heartless courtiers, the ministers, priests, bishops and barons, began at once to strip the body of all the valuables which the king had worn, 
and also to seize and appropriate everything in the apartments of the palace which they could take away. These things were their perquisites, they said, it being customary, as they alleged, that the personal effects of a deceased king should be divided among those who were his attendants when he died. Having secured this plunder, these people disappeared, and it was with the utmost difficulty that assistance enough could be procured to wrap the body in a winding sheet, and to bring a hearse and horses to bear it away to the abbey where it was to be interred. Examples like this, of which the history of every monarchy is full, throw a great deal of light upon what is called the principle of loyalty in the hearts of those who attend upon kings. While the procession was on the way to the abbey where the body was to be buried, it was met by Richard, who, having heard of his father's death, came to join in the funeral solemnities. Richard followed the train until they arrived at the abbey. It was Abbey Fontenroy, the ancient burial place of the Norman princes. Arrived at the abbey, the body was laid out upon the bier, and the face was uncovered, in order that Richard might once more look upon his father's features. But the countenance was so distorted, with the scowling expression of rage and resentment which it had worn during the sufferer's last hours, that Richard turned away in horror from the dreadful spectacle. But Richard soon drove away from his mind the painful thoughts which the sight of his father's face must have awakened, and turned his attention at once to the business which now pressed upon him. He, of course, was heir both to the crown of England and also to all his father's possessions in Normandy, and he felt that he must act promptly in order to secure his rights. It is true that there was nobody to dispute his claim, unless it was his brother John. For the two sons of Rosamond, Geoffrey and William Clifford, did not pretend to any rights of inheritance. Richard had some fears of John, and he thought it necessary to take decisive measures to guard against any plots that John might be disposed to form. He sent at once to England, and ordered that his mother should be released from her imprisonment, and invested her with power to act as regent there until he should come. In the meantime, he himself remained in Normandy, and devoted himself to arranging and regulating the affairs of his French possessions. This was the wisest course for him to pursue, for there was no one in England to dispute his claim to that kingdom. On the continent the case was different. His neighbour, Philip, King of France, was ready to take advantage of any opportunity to get possession of such provinces on the continent as might be within his reach. It was certainly a good deed in Richard to liberate his mother from her captivity, and to exalt her as he did to a position of responsibility and honour. Eleonora fulfilled the trust which he reposed in her in a very faithful and successful manner. The long period of confinement and suffering which she had endured seemed to have exerted a very favourable influence upon her mind. Indeed, it is very often the case that sorrow and trouble have this effect. A life of prosperity and pleasure makes us heartless, selfish and unfeeling, while sorrow softens the heart and disposes us to compassionate the woes of others and to do what we can to relieve them. Eleonora was Queen Regent in England for two months and during that time she employed her power in a very beneficent manner. She released many unhappy prisoners and pardoned many persons who had been convicted of political crimes. The truth is that probably as she found herself drawing towards the close of life and looked back upon her past career and remembered her many crimes, her unfaithfulness to both her husbands and especially her unnatural conduct in instigating her sons to rebel against their father, her heart was filled with remorse and she found some relief from her anguish in these tardy efforts to relieve suffering which might in some small degree repair the evils that she had brought upon the land by the insurrections and wars which she had been the cause. She bitterly repented of the hostility that she had shown towards her husband, and of the countless wrongs that she had inflicted upon him. While he was alive, and she was engaged in her contest with him, the excitement that she was under blinded her mind, but now that he was dead her passion subsided 
and she mourned for him with bitter grief. She distributed alms in a very abundant manner to the poor to induce them to pray for the repose of his soul. While doing these things, she did not neglect the affairs of state. She made all the necessary arrangements for the immediate administration of government, and she sent word to all the barons and also to the bishops and other great public functionaries, informing them that Richard was coming to assume the government of the realm and summoning them to assemble and make ready to receive him. In about two months, Richard came. Before Richard arrived in England, however, he had formed the plan in connection with Philip, the King of France, of going on a crusade. Richard was a wild and desperate man, and he had loved fighting for its own sake, and inasmuch as now, since his father was dead, and his claim to the crown of England, and to all his possessions in Normandy was undisputed. There seemed to be nobody for him to fight at home. He conceived the design of organising a grand expedition to go to the Holy Land and fight the Saracens. John was very much pleased with this idea. If Richard goes to Palestine, he said to himself, ten to one he will get killed, and then I shall be king of England. So John was ready to do everything in his power to favour the plan of the crusade. He pretended to be very submissive and obedient to his brother, and to acknowledge his sovereign power as king. He aided the king as much as he could in making his arrangements and in concocting all his plans. The first thing was to provide funds. A great deal of money was required for these expeditions. Ships were to be bought and equipped for the purpose of transporting the troops to the east. Arms and ammunition were to be provided, and the large supplies of food. Then the princes and the barons and knights who would accompany the expeditions required very expensive armour and costly trappings and equipments of all sorts. For though the pretense was that they were going out to fight for the recovery of the Holy Sepulchre under the influence of religious zeal, the real motive which animated them was the love of glory and display. Thus it happened that the expense which a sovereign incurred in fitting out a crusade was enormous. Accordingly, Richard, immediately on his arrival in England, proceeded at once to Winchester, where his father, King Henry, had kept his treasures. Richard found a large sum of money there in gold and silver coin, and beside this there were stores of plate, of jewellery, and of precious gems of great value. Richard caused all the money to be counted in his presence, and an exact inventory to be made of all the treasures. He then placed the whole under the charge of trusty officers of his own, whom he appointed to take care of them. The next thing that Richard did was to discard and dismiss all his own former friends and adherents, the men who had taken part with him in his rebellions against his father. Men that would join me in rebelling against my father, he thought to himself, would join anybody else if they thought they could gain by it in rebelling against me. So he concluded that they were not to be trusted. Indeed, now, in the altered circumstances in which he was placed, he could see the guilt of rebellion and treason, though he had been blind to it before, and he actually persecuted and punished some of those who had been his confederates in his former crimes. A great many cases analogous to this have occurred in English history. Sons have often made themselves the centre and soul of all the opposition in the realm against their father's government, and having given their fathers a great deal of trouble by so doing. But then in all such cases, the moment that the father dies, the son immediately places himself at the head of the regularly constituted authorities of the realm, and abandons all his old companions and friends, treating them sometimes with great severity. His eyes are opened to the wickedness of making opposition to the sovereign power, now that the sovereign power is vested in himself, and he disgraces and punishes his former friends for the crime of having aided him in his undutiful behaviour. End of chapter 4「
It was now time that the coronation should take place, and arrangements were accordingly made for performing this ceremony with great magnificence in Westminster Abbey. The day of the ceremony acquired a dreadful celebrity in history in consequence of a great massacre of the Jews, which resulted from an insurrection and riot that broke out in Westminster and London immediately after the crowning of the king. The Jews had been hated and abhorred by all the Christian nations of Europe for many ages. Since they were not believers in Christianity, they were considered as little better than infidels and heathen, and the government that oppressed and persecuted them the most was considered as doing the greatest service to the cause of religion. One very curious result followed from the legal disabilities that the Jews were under. They could not own land, and they were restricted also very much in respect to nearly all avocations open to other men. They consequently learned gradually to become dealers in money and in jewels, this being almost the only reputable calling that was left open to them. There was another great advantage too for them in dealing in property of this kind, and that was that comprising as such property does great value in small bulk. It could easily be concealed and removed from place to place whenever it was especially endangered by the edicts of governments or the hostility of enemies. From these and similar reasons, the Jews became the bankers and moneylenders, and they are this day the richest bankers and greatest moneylenders in the world. The most powerful emperors and kings often depend upon them for the supplies that they required to carry on their great undertakings, or to defray the expenses of their wars. The Jews had gradually increased in numbers and influence in France, until the time of the accession of Philip, and then he determined to extirpate them from the realm, so he issued an edict by which they were all banished from the kingdom. Their property was confiscated, and every person that owed their money was released from all obligation to pay them. Of course, a great many of their debtors would pay them, notwithstanding this relief, from the influence of that natural sense of justice which, in all nations and in all ages, has a very great control in human hearts. Still, there were others who would, of course, avail themselves of this opportunity to defraud their creditors of what was justly their due, and being obliged to, at the same time, to fly precipitously from the country in consequence of the decree of the banishment. The poor Jews were reduced to a state of extreme distress. Now the Jews of England, when Henry died and Richard succeeded him, began to be afraid that the new king would follow Philip's example, and in order to prevent this, and to conciliate Richard's favour, they determined to send a delegation to him at Westminster at the time of his coronation, with rich presents which had been procured by contributions made by the wealthy. Accordingly, on the day of the coronation, when the great crowds of people assembled at Westminster to honour the occasions, these Jews came among them. The ceremony of the coronation was performed in the following manner. The king, in entering the church and proceeding up towards the high altar, walked upon a rich cloth laid down for him, which had been dyed with the famous Tyrian purple. Over his head was a beautifully wrought canopy of silk, supported by four long lances. These lances were borne by four great barons of the realm. A great nobleman, the Earl of Abelmale, bore the crown, and walked with it before the king as he advanced towards the altar. When the Earl reached the altar, he placed the crown upon it. The Archbishop of Canterbury stood before the altar to receive the king as he approached, and then administered the usual oath to him. The oath was in three parts. 1. That all the days of his life he would bear peace, honour and reverence to God and the Holy Church and to all the ordinances thereof. 2. That he would exercise right, justice and law on the people unto him committed. 3. That he would abrogate wicked laws and perverse customs 
if any such should be brought into his kingdom, and that he should enact good laws and the same in good faith keep without mental reservation. Having taken this oath, the king removed his upper garment and put golden sandals upon his feet, and then was anointed by the archbishop with the holy oil on his head, breast and shoulders. The oil was poured from a rich vessel called an ampulla. The anointing having been performed, the king received various articles of royal dress and decoration from the hands of the great nobles around him, who officiated as servitors on the occasion, and with their assistance put them on. When thus robed and adorned, he advanced up the steps of the altar. As he went up, the archbishop adjured him in the name of the living God not to assume the crown unless he was fully resolved to keep the oaths that he had sworn. Richard again solemnly called God to witness that he would faithfully keep them, and then advancing to the altar, he took the crown and put it into the hands of the archbishop, who then placed it upon his head, and thus the coronation ceremony was completed. The people who had presents for the king now approached and offered them to him. Among them came the Jews. Their presents were very rich and valuable, and the king received them very gladly, although in announcing the arrangements for the ceremony he had declared that no Jew and no woman was to be allowed to be present. Notwithstanding this prohibition, the Jewish deputation had come in and offered their presence among the rest. There was, however, a great murmuring among the crowd in respect to them, and a great desire to drive them out. This crowd consisted chiefly, of course, of barons, earls, knights, and other great dignitaries of the realm, for very few of the lower ranks would be admitted to see the ceremony, and these people, in addition to the usual religious prejudice against the Jews, had many of them been exasperated against the bankers and money-lenders on account of the difficulties that they had had with them in relation to money that they had borrowed, and to the high interest which they had been compelled to pay. Some wise observer of the working of human passions has said that men always hate more or less those to whom they owe money. This is a reason why there should ordinarily be very few pecuniary transactions between friends. At length, as one of the Jews who was outside was attempting to go in, a bystander at the gate cried out, Here comes a Jew! and struck at him. This excited the passions of the rest, and they struck and pushed the poor Jew in order to drive him back. And at the same time, a general outcry against the Jews arose, and spread into the interior of the hall. The people there, glad of the opportunity afforded them by the excitement, began to assault the Jews and drive them out. And as they came out the door, beaten and bruised, a rumour was raised that they had been expelled by the king's order. This rumour, as it spread through the streets, was soon changed into a report that the king had ordered all the unbelievers to be destroyed. And so, whenever a Jew was found in the street, a riot was raised about him, he was assaulted with sticks and stones, cruelly beaten, and if he was not killed, he is driven to seek refuge in his home, wounded and bleeding. In the meantime, the news that the king had ordered all Jews to be killed spread rapidly over the town, and in the evening crowds collected, and after murdering all the Jews that they could find in the streets, they gathered round their houses and finally broke into them and killed the inhabitants. In some cases, where the houses were strong, the Jews barricaded the doors, and the mob could not get in. In such cases, they brought combustibles, and piled them up before the windows and the doors, and then setting them on fire, they burned the house to the ground, and men, women and children were consumed together in the flames. If any of the unhappy wretches burning in these fires attempted to escape by leaping from the windows, the mob below held up spears and lances for them to fall upon. There were so many of these fires in the course of the night that the whole sky was illuminated, and at one time there was danger that the flames would spread so as to produce a general conflagration. Indeed, as the night passed on, 
the excitement became more and more violent until at length the streets in all the quarters where jews resided were filled with the shouts of the mob raving in demoniacal frenzy and with the screams of the terrified and dying sufferers and the crackling of the lurid flames in which they were burning the king in the meantime was carousing with his lords and barons in the great banqueting hall at westminster and for a time took no notice of these disturbances he seemed to consider them as of very little moment at length however in the course of the night he sent an officer and a few men to suppress the riot but it was too late the mob paid no heed to the remonstrances which came from the leader of so small a force but on the other hand threatened to kill the soldiers too if they did not go away so the officer returned to the king and the riot went on undisturbed until about two o'clock of the next day when it gradually ceased from the mere weariness and exhaustion of the people a few of the men who had been engaged in this riot were afterward brought to trial and three were hung not for murdering jews but for burning some christian houses which either by mistake or accident took fire in the confusion and were burned with the rest this was all that was ever done to punish this dreadful crime in justice to king richard however it must be stated that he issued an edict after this forbidding that the jews should be injured or maltreated any more he took the whole people he said thenceforth under his special protection and all men were strictly forbidden to harm them personally or to molest them in the possession of their property and this was the terrible coronation scene which signalized the investiture of richard with the crown and the royal robes of england End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 of King Richard I This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Richard I by Jacob Abbott Chapter 6 Preparations for the Crusade At the time of his accession to the throne, Richard, as has already been remarked, was about thirty-two years of age. On the following page you have a portrait of him, with the crown upon his head. This portrait is taken from a sculpture on his tomb, and is undoubtedly a good representation of him as he appeared when he was alive. The first thing that Richard turned his attention to when he found himself securely seated on his throne, was the preparation for a crusade. It had been the height of his ambition for a long time to lead a crusade. It was undoubtedly through the influence of his mother and of her early conversations with him that he imbibed his extraordinary eagerness to seek adventures in the Holy Land. She had been a crusader herself during her first marriage, as has already been related in this volume and she had undoubtedly in Richard's early life entertained him with a thousand stories of what she had seen and of the romantic adventures which she had met with there. These stories and the various conversations which arose out of them kindled Richard's youthful imagination with ardent desires to go and distinguish himself on the same field. These desires had been greatly increased as Richard grew up to manhood by observing the exalted military glory to which successful crusaders attained. And then beside this, Richard was endured with a sort of reckless and lion-like courage, which led him to look upon danger as a sport, and made him long for a field where there were plenty of enemies to fight, and enemies so abhorred by the whole Christian world, that he could indulge in the excitement of hatred and rage against them, without any restraint whatever. He could there satiate himself too with the luxury of killing men without any misgiving of conscience, or at least without any condemnation on the part of his fellow men, for it was understood throughout Christendom that the crimes committed against the Saracens in the Holy Land were committed in the name of Christ. What a strange delusion! To think of honouring the memory of the meek and lowly Jesus by utterly disregarding his peaceful precepts, 
and his loving and gentle example, and going forth in thousands to the work of murder, rapine, and devastation, in order to get possession of his tomb. In preparing for the crusade, the first and most important thing to be attended to in Richard's view was the raising of money. A great deal of money would be required, as has already been intimated, to fit out the expedition on the magnificent scale which Richard intended. There was a fleet of ships to be built and equipped, and stores of provisions to be put on board. There were armies to be levied and paid, and immense expenses were to be incurred in the manufacture of arms and ammunition. The armour and the arms used in those days, especially those worn by knights and noblemen, and the caparisons of the horses, were extremely costly. The armour was fashioned with great labour and skill out of plates or rings of steel, and the helmets and the bucklers and the swords and all the military trappings of the horses and the horsemen, being fashioned altogether by hand, required great labour and skill in the artisan who made them. And then, moreover, it was customary to decorate them very profusely with embroidery and gold and gems. At the present day, men display their wealth in the costliness of their houses, and the gorgeousness and luxury of the furniture which they contain. It is not considered in good taste, except for ladies, to make a display of wealth upon the person. In those days, however, the reverse was the case. The knights and barons lived in the rudest stone castles, dark and frowning without, and meagerly furnished and comfortless within, while all the means of display which the owners possessed were lavished in arming and decorating themselves and their horses magnificently for the field of battle. For all these things Richard knew that he should require a large sum of money, and he proceeded at once to carry into effect the most wasteful and reckless measures for obtaining it. His father, Henry II, had in various ways acquired a great many estates in different parts of the kingdom, which estates he had added to the royal domains. These Richard at once proceeded to sell to whomsoever would give the most for them. In this manner he disposed of a great number of castles, fortresses and towns, so as greatly to diminish the value of the crown property. The purchasers of this property, if they had not money enough of their own to pay for what they bought, would borrow from the Jews. Some of the king's counsellors remonstrated with him against this wasteful policy, but he replied that he needed the money so much for the crusade that, if necessary, he would sell the city of London itself to raise it, if he could only find a man rich enough to be the purchaser. After having raised as much money as he could by the sale of the royal lands, the next resource to which Richard turned was the sale of public offices and titles of honour. He looked about the country for wealthy men, and he offered them severally high office on condition of their paying large sums of money into the treasury as a consideration for them. He sold titles of nobility too in the same way. If any man who was not rich held a high or important office, he would find some pretext for removing him, and then would offer the office for sale. One of the historians of those times says that at this period, Richard's presence chamber became a regular place of trade, like the counting room of a merchant or an exchange, where everything that could be derived from the bounty of the crown or bestowed by the royal prerogative was offered for sale in open market to the man who would give the best bargain for it. Another of the modes which the king adopted for raising money, and in some respects the worst of all, was to impose fines as a punishment for crime and then, in order to make the fines produce as much as possible, every imaginable pretext was resorted to to charge wealthy persons with offences, with a view of exacting large sums from them as the penalty. It was said that a great officer of state was charged with some offence, and was put in prison, and not released until he had paid a fine of £3,000. One of the worst of these cases was that of his half-brother, Geoffrey, the son of Rosamond. 
Geoffrey had been appointed Archbishop of York in accordance with the wish that his father Henry had expressed on his deathbed. Richard pretended to be displeased with this. Perhaps he wished to have that office to dispose of like the rest. At any rate, he exacted a very large sum from Geoffrey as a condition on which he would grant him his peace, as he termed it, and Geoffrey paid the money. When by these and other similar means Richard had raised all that he could in England, he prepared to cross the channel into Normandy in order to see what more he could do there. Before he went, however, he had first to make arrangements for a regency to govern England while he should be away. This is always the custom in monarchical countries. Whenever for any reason the true sovereign cannot personally exercise the supreme power, whether from minority, insanity, long-continued sickness or protracted absence from the realm, a regency, as it is called, is created to govern the kingdom in his stead. The person appointed to act as a regent is usually some near relation of the king. Richard's brother John hoped to be made regent, but this did not suit Richard's views, for he wished to make this office the means, as all the others had been, of raising money, and John had no money to give. For the same reason, he could not appoint his mother, who in other respects would have been a very suitable person. So Richard contrived a sort of middle course. He sold the nominal regency to two wealthy courtiers, whom he associated together for the purpose. One was a bishop, and the other was an earl. It may perhaps be too much to say that he directly sold them the office, but at any rate he appointed them jointly to it, and under the arrangement that was made he received a large sum of money. He however stipulated that John, and also his mother, should have a large share of influence in deciding upon all the measures of government. John would have been by no means satisfied with this divided and uncertain share of power, were it not that he was so desirous of favouring the expedition in every possible way, in hopes that if Richard could once get to the Holy Land, he would soon perish there, and that then he should be king altogether. It was of comparatively little consequence who was regent in the meantime, so he resolved to make no objection to any plan that the king might propose. Richard was now ready to cross to Normandy, but just before he went there came a deputation from Philip to consult with him in respect to the plans of the crusade, and to fix upon the time for setting out. The time proposed by Philip was the latter part of March. It was now late in the fall. It would not be safe to set out before March on account of the inclemency of the season, and Richard supposed that he should have ample time to complete his preparations by the time that Philip named. So both parties agreed to it, and they took a solemn oath on both sides that they would all be ready without fail. Soon after this, Richard took leave of his friends, and accompanied by a long retinue of earls, barons, knights, and other adventurers who were to accompany him to the Holy Land, he left England and crossed the Channel to Normandy. In such cases as this, there are always a great many last words to be said, and a great many last arrangements to be made, and Richard found it necessary to see his mother and his brother John again, before finally taking his departure from Europe. So he sent for them to come to Normandy, and there another great council of state was held, at which everything in relation to the eternal affairs of his dominions was finally arranged. There was still one other danger to be guarded against, and that was some treachery on the part of Philip himself. So little reliance did these valiant champions of Christianity place in each other in those days, that both Richard and Philip, in joining together to form this expedition, had many misgivings and suspicions in respect to each other's honesty. Undoubtedly, neither of them would have thought it safe to leave his dominions and go on a crusade unless the other had been going too. The one left behind would have been sure to found some pretext during the absence of his neighbour to invade his dominions and plunder him 
of some of his possessions. This was one reason why the two kings had agreed to go together, and now, as an additional safeguard, they made a formal treaty alliance and fraternity in which they bound themselves by the most solemn oaths to stand by each other and to be faithful and true to each other to the last. They agreed that each would defend the life and honour of the other on all occasions, that neither would desert the other in the hour of danger, and that in respect to the dominions that they were respectively to leave behind them, neither would form any designs against the other, but that Philip would cherish and protect the rights of Richard, even as he would protect his own city of Paris, and that Richard would do the like by Philip, even as he would protect his own city of Rouen. It is curious circumstance that in this treaty Richard should name Rouen and not London as his principal capital. It confirms what is known in many other ways, that the kings of this line, reigning over both Normandy and England, considered Normandy as the chief centre of their power, and England as subordinate. It may be, however, that one reason why Rouen was named in this instance may have been because it was nearer to the dominions of the King of France, and so better known to him. This treaty was signed in February, and the preparations were now nearly complete for setting forth on the expedition in March at the appointed time. End of chapter 6